The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. From our studios in Chattanooga, Tennessee, USA, welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, now heard in over 100 countries around the world. Glad you are here. This is the show where we chat with the world's most brilliant thinkers and experts about transforming your workplaces and growing your business through the powerhouse principles of love and care. Love and action in the context of today's episode is about becoming a mindful leader. So let me ask you a question. What would your work and your life look like if you knew how to stay focused yet flexible? if you got more of the right things done, and if you were helping to create a more peaceful environment around you at the same time. Today's leaders in this pandemic are grappling with constant change. They are challenged with keeping businesses afloat and people employed. And so many of them that I've spoken to are suffering or beginning to suffer from burnout, from the stress that they are taking on. So if you're not familiar with the practice of mindful leadership, it may be one of the most important competencies in business today if leaders are to move beyond fear, anxiety, self-doubt, and overwhelm. In a new book called Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen, our distinguished guest today offers us a practical framework that can be applied to leadership, whatever level you're at. And he provides us the tools we need to shift our awareness, eliminate fear and self-doubt, and cut out the workplace drama. Mark Lesser joins us on the program. Mark has taught the principles of his book to leaders at Google, Genentech, SAP, Facebook, Kaiser Permanente, and, and dozens of other Fortune 500 companies for over 20 years. This incredibly practical book draws on Mark's experience as well from being a CEO of three companies, as well as co-founder of the world-renowned Search Inside Yourself program within Google, and as a longtime Zen practitioner. Mark is also a speaker, facilitator, workshop leader, and executive coach. He is the CEO of ZBA Associates, an executive development and leadership consulting company. So let's dive in. Here's my conversation with Mark Lesser. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you, Marcel. Thanks for that very warm welcome. And I, I was thinking several times, boy, there's a lot of the pretty big promise, some big, big promises there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my friend, that's funny. We start with a gratitude moment in all of our, our uh, love and action sessions. So uh, for you, in the times that we're in right now, what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Well, this morning, it was, I think, a combination of the sunlight, uh, uh, that it's getting, getting light 
light earlier and earlier. And even though I get up pretty early, it's like, oh, it's, it's already getting light. I have to say the amazing ways that people are coming together and helping each mm. other during, during these times, the level of creativity that I see r- right now, you know, amidst incredible suffering and, and pain. And I'll add to that, and the, um, I get to hear the giggling of my grandson who lives mm. downstairs. In fact, the, the nursery is right below my office. We might get, we, he might be part of this podcast today. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's right. This is the world, the new world we live in, and I would welcome that if he decides to chime in. Before I get into the book and mindful leadership, there's always an origin story, right? So what, what got you so interested in, in the practice of, of mindfulness? That kind of set me on, on this path of that here I am many, many years later being drawn to, I like how, how Dogen, Dogen is the founder of Zen Buddhism in Japan, the 13th century, and he, he describes it as uh, studying the self and going beyond the self. I like that, you know, it's not just studying the self and it's not just going beyond the self that we somehow, somehow need to do, find a way to do both. Okay, so let's capture this in a bottle maybe and, and <laughs> just bring us down from the clouds and ground us about what is mindful leadership in your own words. How would you describe it? Yeah, I think... I think it's a lot like like we're already into the topic. I think I think mindful leadership is this um, heightened practice of uh, self awareness, becoming really comfortable in your in your own skin, understanding your own proclivities, understanding you know why uh, greed, hate, and delusion are just a part of of the, you know not not denying it, not suppressing it, uh, and uh, transform that 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 inner transformation, and at the same time, the engaging with other people and with the world with compassion, and mm-hmm. and compassion is you know the practice of feeling the feelings of others, cultivating understanding, and and the desire to help, the desire to um, relieve people's suffering, and I think it's it's funny how it can get lost. In all of the noise, the to me the fact that all of business and all of leadership is essentially helping others. Mm. Like, why do businesses exist? Businesses don't exist to make me wealthy. If I want to, mm. you know, like that's that that might be one of you know that's not a bad motivation to want to want wealth to want to create wealth. Many motivations uh, for business and leadership, but the primary one, whatever the business is, is like serving people, you know, whether you're a bank or a, you know, or a grocery store or, or a, whatever you are, it's all about helping others. And it's funny that that, that's not so advertised, that gets lost right. in, in the, the discussion, that reality. Yeah, that's why I love the book. Um, let's dive into it. You frame it around these seven practices that, that you teach. So, can you go over each of the seven? Sure, and and just a little framing. You know that I spent ten years living at the San Francisco Zen Center, went to business school, started and ran a publishing company for for literally for fifteen years, and then uh, 
I found myself wondering what I was going to do next in my life. And, and I got a call from a Google engineer asking if I would come and help develop a mindfulness program at Google. And, and it was also, oh, and by the way, there's no budget. It's like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> what fine. And, and, and so I, I showed up at Google and um, with a, a small team, we kind of built built a, a mindfulness and emotional intelligence leadership program there that that became incredibly uh, popular. And as we were looking for how to scale mindfulness, um, we we decided we needed to train some Google engineers to teach mindfulness. Mm. And, and and one of the questions was, well, what what are the core practices, core values, core competencies that we need to focus on. And it was in that question that these seven practices emerged. And, and, and as they emerged, uh, I looked at these practices and I thought, well, these, these go far beyond teaching, becoming a mindfulness teacher. At the time, I was CEO of, of an organization. And, and I thought, these describe the kind of culture that I wanted to build. And then even beyond that, I feel like this is how I want to live my life, you know, these, yeah. these seven practices. So they are uh, love the work, do the work, uh, don't be an expert, connect to your pain, connect to the pain of others, depend on others, and keep making it simpler. Mm. And, and I find still, you know, as you might imagine, I've, I've said those a few, quite a few times now in my life, especially in the last few years. And I love the, there's something very poetic about them, but also very practical. Mm. And I think that that's part, going back to your previous question, I think mindful leadership is both poetic in that it needs to be inspiring. It needs to be, you know, part of being a leader is to be a visionary. And to, and part of being a leader is to uh, gather people around to to share that vision and to feel the we we all love to feel that kind of connected and passionate and especially if it's a vision about as you know how can we help how, how can we help a lot of people how can we help people in a way that has real uh, credibility and depth to it and you know it's also mindful leadership and these practices are very practical. They need, you need to stay on the ground, um, you know, pay attention to uh, balance sheets and income statements and performance reviews and, um, and, and and yeah, that, that kind of groundedness of the practical nuts and bolts of business and and life. Yeah. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I, before we get into the practical, because I'm definitely going to get into asking you about practical tips for a few of these, but I want to get into the core message of maybe a couple of them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I'm going to pick a couple at random. Uh, one that we don't focus enough attention on, I think, is connect to your pain. Mm-hmm. Um, these are painful times. <laughs> What's the core message there behind connect to your pain from a mindfulness perspective? Yeah. I mean, the core message is that uh, being a human being is a tough gig. Uh, being a leader is hard, you know, just, just that. So it's like, don't, not only don't avoid, but really pay attention to what's hard, you know, that, that um, 
you open your refrigerator door to get an egg and, and it breaks in your hand. It's like, that wasn't your fault, but that kind of sucks when that happens. Mm. And, and it happens all the time. Or you put a great team together and then I still remember that Monday morning when I was feeling good about my team and then I get a call, you know, I have to move because my wife's family is moving. And, and then the other person, you know, I, I just discovered I'm pregnant. Congratulations. And I'm leaving. my. So things happen, right? Things we want to happen don't. Things we don't want to happen do. And then there's just that our own sense of loneliness, our own sense of impermanence and uncertainty. And, and right now, here we are. Like, so we're all getting a, a heavy dose of uncertainty. So but I think that the core message is that by connecting with our pain, we discover that that's where the real jewels are as well. That, that if we're not pushing our pain away and we're not pretending it's not there, it's like there's some freedom in that. And there's some, uh, it allows me to better connect with your pain as well and not be afraid of your pain and see that we're all in this together. No one has chosen me. I'm not the chosen one for pain. It's the human condition. And that with that practice, we can also get to the incredible depth of our own being, our own satisfaction, our own joy is right in there as, as well. So that's, yeah. the, that's the practice. Well, let me comment on my own, how I'm connecting to my pain, Mark, because I, I told my wife the other day, I can't recall a time when I felt so frustrated um, consistently over the last four, three or four months. And, and then I, the other day I was, you know, and I was going to lash out at my seven-year-old because my frustration meant that I was something he did in, uh, in, in my frustration, I started to raise my voice and he said, daddy, why are you mad at me? And I pulled back and realized I got to get out of this mindset that I'm in, this frustration. So uh, my wife and I talked and I said, you know, it's like flipping a switch. I can, like that, choose consciously to stop being frustrated. You know, the stuff is still going to happen. The things that are bothering me, yes, are out of my control. And so I decided to turn it off, turn off. Uh, the frustration and just kind of be in the moment with the things that are good around me. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have our health when people are dying. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, we, I mean, we have a roof over our heads. I say that because we have a, we, on top of the pandemic, we had a tornado that hit Chattanooga mm -hmm. on Easter Sunday and, uh, you know, over 300 homes are destroyed. So, all these things to me is uh, now that I'm kind of understanding how to become more mindful is to kind of release the worries, release the anxieties that we feel and just kind of see that it's going to be okay, that you are okay and it's going to be okay. And um, so to me, that's, that's how I've, I've connected to my pain is by it's choosing to release the, the, the hold of frustration that, that kind of grappled me for a while. That's a great story. And I, your, your seven-year-old sounds like he's a, a, a great teacher. <laughs> yeah. He's a little Zen master in the making, I guess. Yeah. Um, the other one that, you know, 
Americans especially, I'm going to harp on Americans. We are a, a very individualistic society. We're extremely independent and self-sufficient. And one of your mindfulness practices is number six, which is depend on others. So what's the core message there? Yeah, the core message is that this attitude that you mentioned about Americans, this sense of independence, right? As though, as though I have to do it by myself. Um, especially, I think this, I mean, it, it shows up so prominently in the world of work and business, how, how everything we do is with others and dependent on others, everything, right? I mean, I don't care what your role is, right? Whether you're a salesperson or a leader or, or you know, working, working on, on the lines, um, it's all about working together, all about teamwork. And it's becoming, I think it's become more and more prominent. And I think, um, I think this is why companies like Google and, and companies now all over the world are, are training their people in mindfulness because it, it, it helps us become more aware of those, those kind of underlying attitudes. And, and also, I think it's a, it provides a basis of communication skills, right? So d- it's easy to say depend on others, but it's hard. Uh, it's hard to depend on others, and it's hard to communicate with others because we, we are so different. And I think we're also, I think we humans are so much more fragile and tender. We often, especially in the world of business and leaderships, we put up this sense about, you know, strength and independence. And, you know, and of course, it's good to be strong. It's good to be independent. But I also think that we are so tenderhearted. And that I think um, being able to show uh, that uh, tenderheartedness, I think, is actually hugely important in the world of work. Uh, because one of the, you know, like, I think depend on others and cultivating trust are very, very much related. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm fond of saying that uh, if you're not cultivating trust, you are cultivating cynicism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that cynicism is easy, especially in the world of work, but even, even in parenting, even in parenting or in friendships that, that, it's so easy because I think we are so tender-hearted underneath the veneer of of independence and strength that that we smell we smell lack of authenticity we smell when someone is not aligned when their words and body and actions are not aligned we, we can tell and it's easy to be it's easy to be mistrusting it's easy to be cynical these are I think the kind of the underlying practices around depend on others. Who wants to depend on others? Like, I might get hurt, right? Well, yeah. what's, the, what's the alternative? Yeah, yeah. Let's get into some practical tips of some of these. And uh, we agreed to pick on a couple of them. And number one is love the work. So what would you say is the best way that I as a leader can, quote, love the work? Yeah. So just to be clear, often when people hear this, um, and I did struggle with the languaging of this. So um, um, in this in this practice, the work doesn't 
does not refer to your particular job or career. It refers to the work of mindfulness practice. It refers to loving the work of knowing yourself and going beyond yourself and helping others. Mm. And I think this, in some way, this presents a subtle but enormous shift in one's, where are you focusing, right? So, and, and of course, you know, the, the particular role that you have, um, particular job matters. It does matter. But whatever you're doing, you can, you can do these, pra- you can learn to and lean into loving these practices. And to me, in addition to my, you know, I have a formal coaching practice, but informally I find myself um, advising and talking to lots of people, young people, middle-aged people, old people, because so many of us are in transition and are trying to figure out what, what should I be doing. And more and more I've, I've started uh, realizing that it actually can be a very practical help to realize that this is my career, that my real career my real job is loving, is, is again and again loving the work of uh, mindfulness, of self-awareness, and, mm-hmm. and, of, and of looking at how I can help others. Yeah. And number seven is keep making it simpler. So how do we mindfully do that? Yeah, and this is a hard one. And I think, I think, I think this has been one of the, maybe the silver linings of this time. I think a lot of people are, um, if you don't fight it, if you don't fight that, oh, I can't go to restaurants and bars and see my friends, that if you can accept it, so it's a kind of accepting what we can't control, there's a, there's a simplicity there. And, and there's also, it, it's forced people, I think, to, to slow down. It's forced me. I can speak personally. It's like, um, I would have been on the East Coast now you know, uh, teaching a, leading a two-day off-site retreat. And I probably would have been, you know, having this conversation in between meetings. And, and then I, I was supposed to fly right from there to Europe. So it's forced me to keep it simpler. And again, at first I had, I felt this kind of disappointment and even some grief about all my plans are, have been, you know, they, they, they shot to hell. <laughs> and, uh, but it's like, wow, like, wh- why was I doing that? This, I, I like the simplicity of moving around less. I mean, of course, I, I'd, still, I, I'd still look forward to, there's something beautiful about visiting other places and other cultures. I don't, I don't want to give that up completely, but I also don't need to move around so much. And um, so I think this practice, keep making it simpler. Part of it is um, this uh, acceptance of what is and a different relationship with what we really want. And, and also, I think it forces us, I think it's the practice of coming back to, like, what really matters? What's, what's, real, what's really uh, important to us? I even think back to your, you know, in some way, your seven-year-old was, was saying to you, Dad, like, what, what really matters? Like, why are you, why are you being so distracted what what is it what is it like like isn't it about it's about our relationship and our connection let's keep it simple let's just let's connect and if we're if we're complicating things resisting things getting angry at things 
So these practices, I think, are, again, but again and again, it's like noticing, noticing um, when I'm angry, noticing when I'm not wanting to be where I am, my own, whatever, whatever my resistance is. And, and Marcel, I think this is a very, um, I'll, I'll make a pitch here for why meditation practice, I think, is so important. Mm. Is that, well, like, how do you actually do these, these practices? Like, it, they're easy to say. It's easy to say, you know, focus on what's important, you know, uh, embrace uncertainty, life is short, but these things are not only cognitive ideas, we need to somehow find a way to embody these, these ideas and put them into practice. Yeah. Um, and so much of that, I think, is noticing when we're not. And meditation practice is a great, you know, like, you know, uh, you sit down, you sit down and, and right away you notice how busy your mind is. Uh, right away, this thought comes up like why am i doing this it's beautiful outside it's like well no i've chose i've chosen this and let's let's see what let's let's oh isn't that isn't that interesting my own my own resistance to doing what i've just decided to do and and just kind of becoming more and more familiar with our our own greed hate and delusion mm-hmm. and uh, our own resistances our own pains and and breathing right into them and embrace embracing them and and again i think um it's kind of cultivating cultivating the body of uh of safety uh the body of satisfaction to not always be dissatisfied and the body of connection yeah yeah so a lot of people might say you know, I want a meditation. I want to have a meditation practice, but they don't know how to do it. One. And two, they might say, I just don't have the time for it. So what do you suggest? How do you counter that argument? <laughs> so it was the, um, the, the, the question that by far I was most asked by Google engineers was, what is the least amount of time I can meditate and have it, <laughs> have it make a difference? You know, and they wanted the scientific answer. Um, well, one of the stories I've been telling uh, uh, in, in response to that question is, um, have you read the, uh, these uh, two books by Yuval Noah Harari, uh, Sapiens and Homo Deus? Have not, not yet. They're fantastic. They're fantastic books uh, about history. And, but they're, they are incredible. They're both like, pretty dense, dense books that I'm, I'm sort of amazed at the, even the, the number of pages of notes and footnotes. And you know, then he wrote a third book uh, called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And, and all of these books have been on the bestseller list for a while. But in this third book, the 21st lesson is meditation. And he uh, confesses in, in this book that he practices meditation for two hours a day, seven days a week, and then says he could not have written any of these books if he did not have a meditation practice. So a lot of people, when you, you know, use a phrase like, you know, accomplishing more by doing less, or, or talk about that, this practice of stepping out of your life and sitting meditation you know, navel gazing 
uh, will actually result in more accomplishment. I think this is, to me, um, so I don't want to sell it too hard, you know, because you, you really have to experience it. And, and, I, and I do, you know, I've, I've now worked with many, many people who've wanted to have a meditation practice and struggled because it's hard. It's hard to just stop and make the time. One of the secrets that I've found is to, is to meditate with others. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you, and like, and now it's funny it, that used to seem hard because like, Oh, I don't have a, I don't have a group. You know, I live in Chattanooga and I, there's, there might not be a lot of meditation groups in chat. There probably are. I don't, I'm just making that up. <laughs> but, but now I'm sitting with people all over the world uh, because of this um, pandemic that we're in. Um, uh, I sit every morning now with, my, my friends at the San Francisco Zen Center who are doing an online sitting. And I lead a sitting, you know, every Wednesday night with, with what my Mill Valley Zen group. There are people from Chile and, and New Zealand and Europe. And like, so sitting with others is easy now, easier than it's ever, ever been. So I think there's something about um, not trying to do it alone. This, again, it's a little bit like depend, this practice of depending on others. But I think that, you know, partly, yeah, there's just something, there's a different quality of not sitting by yourself. So that's yeah. my other, my other yeah. you know. But you have to, there's something about doing it and then just um, experiencing the, whatever the benefits might be for yeah. you. Yeah. It, it mm. takes a little while. You know, so many of us, aren't able to shut it down when we get home. We bring work home and then that affects our family relationships. How do I practice mindfulness at home? Yeah, no, that's, um, I, I, I hear that a lot. And, and I, you know, and I, I was subject to that too, especially, you know, when you have a very demanding, engaging job. And um, to me, part of the practice is to uh, do some kind of a ritual or routine uh, before you walk in the door, like to actually, actually take, um, make, take a couple of, uh, of conscious breaths. But again, I think, again, this is easier said than done. This is why I think if you, if you have a regular meditation practice, you have, you have something to refer to, a reference point for, oh, I, 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 I've practiced shutting it off. I can practice shifting from activity to stopping and, and I don't have to be a victim or subject of my, my monkey mind, my thinking mind. So I, I think it does, I think it helps to have that basis, but then even with that, to, to have that, um, that routine or ritual, I'm shutting it off now. I'm going to give my I'm going to give my my complete attention to being with my family or taking care of myself or making dinner whatever it is and you know that doesn't mean that doesn't mean those thoughts just like in meditation this is where medi- in meditation you know you say oh I'm going to follow my breath well good luck with that um, uh, thoughts are going to come up things are going to happen it's like you notice those and you but then you come back you come back. And it's the same, I think, with um, being with our, with our kids, being with our loved ones after work is that you just, you, you, 
it's the training. You have to train yourself again and again to, to come back. And then, and then if you find you're distracted, it's not about beating yourself up about it. It's like, oh, like I've got, I've got work to do here. Um, and we yeah. all have work and we all have work to do. I mean, I, you know, uh, you know, I have to say, you know, I'm, I've been doing these practices my whole life and my wife thinks it's hilarious that I'm teaching emotional intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a, a question that I wanted to ask you, bring us back to the culture side of, you know, of leadership. And I want you to make the link between mindful leadership and trust, specifically building a, building a workplace of trust. Because I know that there are so many people out there that are walking into their work, well, pre-pandemic, <laughs> walking into, maybe the, we will again, um, to workplaces that are lacking in trust. So what do you recommend here? Yeah, well now, you know, now that there's all of these online meeting meetings happening, I think that, um, and I, I'm working. With, I work with a lot of different leaders and uh, cultures where there were not trust. There's even less trust now, and cultures where there was trust, there's more trust now. So this this level of stress and and uh, uncertainty accentuates, in a sense, what what is. Uh, I think there's. I, I think of it, Marcel, as there being sort of these two two big buckets to pay attention to when it comes to building trust. One, one for a leader or for any, any of us is to build and cultivate the body of trust, right? There's a, it's a body thing. It's being, you know, I, I, I know people, uh, I remember leaders who will say to me, I don't, I don't understand why people don't trust me. I, uh, and, and I, I can just see that, there's a lack of alignment in, in what they're wanting to project and what their body projects. Their, their, their facial expressions tell me that they're angry, that they're dissatisfied, that they're frustrated. You know, why won't they, you know, it's like, well, I can, I can tell you why people don't. So there's a alignment thing. There's a body thing, but, and then there's this whole, I think, um, skill, skill building and communication tools. Part of that is listening. Part of that, and I'd say listening is one of those things that maybe is a bit of both. It's a bit of a body thing, but it's also a skill thing. It's like actually being curious about what someone else is saying, actually listening and, and not jumping ahead and needing to, needing to be a certain way, but allowing, allowing that conversation to, um, to unfold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, being 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 able to have um, strategies for working with one's own anger and frus frustration, and working with the anger and frustration of others—all the those. So there's the body thing and the skill thing. Those I think are the, uh, you know, and then and then I think there's more uh, cre creating systems you can in an organization. Um, how you hire and fire how you do performance reviews, how you set up your compensation and bonuses, how you do all those systemic things will, will build or not build trust. So I think maybe those are those three pieces that kind of building on the personal, the communication skills, and then the more systemic pieces. Mm. 
I want to transition to um, a segment that we have here, which is uh, kind of a juxtaposing fear against love and, and, you know, practical love that results in what you and I talk about and all my guests talk about. So fear to me paralyzes and strips us of experiencing connection and mindfulness, obviously. And yet here we are in 2020 and fear is still prevalent in how organizations are managed. So how, the question for you then, Mark, is why do people still lead through fear when we have the evidence that love, compassion, connection work for, um, for you know, acquiring positive business outcomes? Yeah. yeah, so fear. This brings me to, you know, some of the uh, characters in my book are, are what I call the, the three apes. And these, these have to do with how we as humans have, have evolved. And, and I, was, I got to be really close with a Google scientist who uh, liked to say that we are descendants of the nervous apes, right? That, that as we've evolved over hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years, you know, the, our ancestors that were chill, that were cool, they all got killed. Uh, it, was, it was the ones that were very skilled at scanning for threats. And we've evolved to be incredibly brilliant threat scanners, right? That, that we are, we're hypersensitive to anything that might uh, cause us harm. And, and that could be, you know, uh, you know, a dangerous animal, or it could be our boss or, mm-hmm. or someone we work with, an, e- an email, a look, any, any communication. So um, we've, we've evolved. This is part of our evolution. And I also think that most of us have, um, if you pay any attention, we're always, we're scanning internally for threats as well. That, that funny inner, inner voice that we have, that inner critic that's, that's judging, engaging, am I okay? Did I say the right thing? You know, like, you know, do I have lipstick on? Or like, I think part of that, that nervous ape. And I don't think, you know, we're not going to eradicate our own fear. We're not going to, in fact, it's a, it's a healthy, positive thing. It keeps us alive, scanning for threats. But it's uh, developing uh, awareness and tools for, for working with, with that. Yeah. Why did mindfulness evolve? Why did it, why did, what, what's, why did it, where did it come from? Well, it came from because we've evolved to scan for threats and we've also evolved to be dissatisfied a lot, right? That, that being dissatisfied is good for human evolution, you know, for, for needing that next meal or that next, you know, distraction, whatever it is that, from an evolutionary perspective, fear and desire core. So these practices evolved as ways of uh, working, working with cultivating a bit more way of freedom so that we're not tossed around by fear and we're not tossed around by desires. Mark, I've heard many variations of that, of the, of, uh, you know, the answer to that question. But you're the first, I'm going to be on record here, to suggest an 
evolutionary reason for why fear still exists. So. Oh. Really, I thought I always I just thought it was obvious. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, so usually I I I I'm trying to get from like you know how do we switch? So if if I am coming from a <laughs> a biological now fear response to leading people. How do I switch to a more mindful approach of, um, of loving others, you know, from a business standpoint, is there, is there a first step as a leader? Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the path I think is, um, I think maybe it's, uh, highlighting what one's intention is. What is your intention? Do you want to be a mindful leader? Do you want to be a more compassionate leader? Do you, is that something that, do you have that basic value? Do you have that basic intention? Is that important to you? And those are great questions, you know, I would start there. And then, and then it's um, noticing, noticing what is, in what ways am I, what are my habits and proclivities and tendencies, in what way and what way is my body, my thoughts, my feelings, my actions aligned with that intention? And what way mm. aren't they? And these are hard to see. This is where I think we often, you know, I love doing like performance reviews in which I get to ask people who work around. Or, or I used to do this when I was the CEO of my last company. We used to do an anonymous survey. And boy, it's eye-opening and can be painful to see the gaps between how I think I'm showing up and how other people are perceiving me. Yeah. Uh, and, but this is such, you know, like you, you, you get to do these at home. Your seven-year-old was giving you a, you know, a 360 review. Yeah. Uh, Dad, you're, you are intending, you, you think you're being a really good, compassionate dad, but, but you look angry to me. Like, what's yeah. that about? <laughs> and just like, yeah. Mark, you, you say you want to develop this kind of culture, but but you know what? You're um, you're not really helping me in my professional development. You, um, that that's important to me, and you're not paying attention to that. So, so it's like um, I think it's intention, uh, and then it's noticing. And I think, but noticing is not just what you think, but actually somehow paying attention to what the people around you. How how are you being perceived? It's like. You know, I, I, I often tell executives that if you think you're a good listener and everyone around you says you're not a good listener, you're not a good listener. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, and then it's, um, and then I think it's putting practices into place to help close those gaps between yeah. your intention and, and what is. So pretty, yeah. si pretty simple and lifelong. I think these are, this is a great path here for even at home, right? Like how do you, what kind of, what's your intention in your marriage or what's your intention as a father? Um, and, and then noticing like, where are the gaps between what I really want, you know, in my marriage or in my parenting? And I might have to ask my wife, you know, it's a um, uh, beautiful, I always think of this beautiful question by, uh, Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, who suggests that every once in a while we remember to ask our partners, uh, please tell me, how can I love you better? Please hmm. tell me, how can I love you better? 
So, so it's not about beating ourselves up for those gaps, right? There's going to be gaps. Yeah. I don't care how long you've been practicing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and then it's like, there's some gaps here. I need to, I need to listen better or I need to uh, initiate, I need to initiate more, you know, or, or I need to initiate less, whatever that is. So uh, I think these are the very practical ways to, uh, whether it's uh, building organizational culture or, or having a healthy family life. Mm. Yeah, I often tell my clients, uh, my coaching clients, that one of the most courageous and also most humble things they'll ever do is ask for feedback on how they're doing. And not enough leaders are doing that today. So I appreciate that, Mark. Mark, we bring it home with two questions. And the first question is, personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like us to know? I mean, tugging at my heart right now is, is uh, all of the suffering that's happening in our, in our world with this, with this COVID-19. And, the, um, and I think of the, uh, I have a good friend who is a healthcare worker in New York City. And so I, I feel like I, I get to um, hear kind of firsthand about the incredible acts of courage and kindness that are, that are happening. And, and also just seeing all of the, um, you know, beautiful offerings. There's, there's so many offerings that are happening right now um, online. And I also see it, you know, every, every time someone comes to my door and delivers a package, I'm, I'm like, I just want to, you know, thank them and bow down that they're, you know, I know that they're risking, essentially risking their lives to mm. keep things going. Yeah. And finally, you end this conversation your way with one key thing, one final takeaway that we can, uh, you know, bring with us to make a difference in our lives. What would that be? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm thinking of um, a few lines uh, from a poem. One is, this is from a, a William Stafford poem called You Reading This, Be Ready. And uh, I don't have it in front of me, but so I'm, I'm so maybe paraphrasing a little bit. He says, you know, uh, are you waiting for time to show you some better thoughts? What gift can you give than this moment right now, right? The, the beautiful sparkling moment that we have right now. What greater gift can there be than now? The book is called Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader. Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. He is Mark Lesser. If people want to get in touch with you, Mark, how do they do that? MarkLesser.net, M-A-R-C-L-E-S-S-E-R.net. And uh, yeah, I've been, doing a, a, I've been doing a pretty, pretty cool weekly newsletter that, that people can register for. And lots of, I do a lot of trainings these days. It's available for anyone, anyone in the world and coaching and I'm easy, easy, easy to find. And um, I love this process of transformation. Transforming people is what gets me excited and, and motivates me to keep doing the work myself. Mark, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Wish you the best. Thank you, Marcel. As I reflect back on that conversation, the mindful practice that really sticks out for me, because I'm a big proponent of servant leadership is practice number six in Mark's book, 
depend on others. Let me read you a quick excerpt from the book. Mark says, a classic definition of leadership is inspiring others to perform and achieve a shared vision. This is true, but I would rephrase this definition of leadership as the art of building trust and meaningful connections in an environment where results matter. The leader is in charge of supporting the team, and this requires interdependence, being in a relationship with others who depend on you just as you depend on them. Wow. So, gang, I don't care how long you've called yourself a leader and how big and fancy your title is. Leaders cannot go at it alone. I mean, as much as people depend on us as leaders, we have to depend on the tribe because together we can achieve greater and more things and think more creatively than any leader could do on his own. My special thanks to Mark Lesser for expanding our awareness of mindful leadership. And thank you, Love in Action listener, for joining the movement. Please share this episode and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Next week, I am joined by Francis Frey, co-author of Unleashed, the unapologetic leader's guide to empowering everyone around you. Until then, don't forget, love in action. It's what will truly set your leadership apart. Just try it and be convinced. Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.